0: I normally don't make a recording unless things get complicated enough for me to keep track of it all so I've had these insights about magnetic remnants versus permanent magnets (coughs) and the only difference between them is that one is treated with heat and the other is not while both are treated to a magnetic field namely iron in a... um oh and the other difference is since you can use heat you don't need a toroidal loop to maintain the magnetic loop the flux loop you, you all, all you have to um, do is apply heat to rearrange the molecules of the future to be made permanent magnet now the difference between them <coughs> see the core of a iron transformer is acting as a capacitor a magnetic capacitor when it transfers energy from the primary to the secondary Um, not unless the core of the transformer is heated sufficiently enough to turn it into a permanent magnet will the influence of the primary induce anything along the lines of true magnetism to the core otherwise it's simply magnetic capacitance (coughs) <coughs> what's going on is that unless we have heat allowing for the reorientation of the molecules of iron inside a, a blob of iron without heat the most we can hope for is to create remnants which means there's a capacitive charge going across the surface of each iron molecule without reorienting it. Now if heat is applied, now they can re- they're can they free to move about and reorient themselves and give us a permanent magnet. But without that heat allowing for the gyroscopic, let's say, uh, you know, all directions mobility of each iron molecule, the most that we can hope for is a capacitive charge. That means that a permanent magnet holder experiment or demonstration uh, popularized by Edward Leedschalen is not magnetism that holds the pieces together it's capacitance, it's the dielectric force that glues um, the two surfaces together even though it's traveling through a magnetic medium to do so a magnetizable medium to do so um, not through copper and not certainly not through a dielectric so it's it's what the electrostatic force how it influences uh, ferromagnetizable material in a way that induces magnetism but only as a side effect because it's ferromagnetizable otherwise it wouldn't induce that and we wouldn't even notice a whole lot of electrostatic uh, force necessarily having any impact on gluing anything together. Um, but that's what it amounts to. It's like a dual nature. <clears throat> now, the reason for all of these distinctions is to try to figure out what was meant by uh, a William Lyons' quotation of Nikola Tesla, for every 200 pounds of iron added to a special generator one horsepower was increased at the output. What he was doing was, he didn't tell anyone, but he was creating a temporary magnet, a solenoid, inside a special generator, and the iron magnetically coupled to that core of that solenoid, those two horseshoe solenoids, the iron extension was serving as a capacitor. So, basically, magnetic remnants is magnetic capacitance. But you can substitute capacitors in its place and still get the same effect so long as the source is a permanent magnet. In other words, a DC current. So remanence is a DC phenomenon and yet it's a capacitive phenomenon. It's a DC capacitive phenomenon. And that's the purpose of the iron. 200 pounds of iron is not the 200 pounds, but 200 pounds fashioned with sufficient surface area to create capacitance and also um, sufficient looping surface area to create inductance. Two types of uh, consequences of surface area. Um, but that's the significance. So. When he told the Germans to install a special generator in bolted to the floor of their battery room of their Electro U-Boats, he was giving them only one way to increase the power of the special generator. By using the shell, the circular hull shape of the Electro U-Boat, to add capacitance and inductance to the core of his sol- of the solenoids the ho- horseshoe solenoids of his special generator but the other way to do it is to add capacitors and you can do away with the massive tonnage of the hull of an electro U-boat vessel and substitute so this is basically an ideal transformer in which you replace the core of a transformer with permanent magnets and if you have four rod shaped Permanent magnets, oriented in pairs that are aligned with each other, but then the opposite pair is an opposite polarity. In, in other words, on a diagonal, so you make a square arrangement. When you look down the length of your permanent magnet rod-shaped permanent magnets, um, opposite corners of the square arrangement are the same polarity. So. You'll have two north poles on opposite corners and two south poles in between on the other two opposite corners. And this creates magnetic, magnetic loops that are going in opposite directions and cross each other at right angles. As, the, uh, no, actually, <laughs> it's the other way around. <clears throat> oh, so maybe I got it wrong. Um, let's see. Uh... No, they would go uh, parallel to each other, wouldn't they? There'd be four of them, actually. And we don't need that many, do we? <clears throat> let's see. Positive to negative. Oh, I see. So the ones that are going in parallel are going at right angles to each other. Um... The ones that are in opposition are in a parallel arrangement, opposition of polarization. Well, in any case, that was the idea, was to have four rods. Two of them um, flipped in their polarity of poles. Um, But that's the core of a tra- an ideal transformer but in order to get more power out of it you either add capacitance usually in pairs in series with the with the um, no oh, let me think right in series shorting out basically the terminals of the transformer um, <clears throat> or you add iron bolted coupled magne- magnetically coupled to the endpoints of those permanent magnets. That's why he used a horseshoe shape, I guess, because then he could have them meet together, and be bolted to the floor. In any case of the electro U boat, in any case, um, an ideal transformer is a transformer that has DC capacitance stored inside of it, and that's a permanent magnet. But you got to have more than one, and I think it's four not two because you got to have the DC orientation of magnetic looping because that's what a permanent magnet is it's a DC uh, magnetic orientation of flow you know equivalent to a solenoid a DC solenoid Um, it'll form a magnetic loop coming out of one the ends of one permanent magnet and entering the ends of the other if they're opposite Sidely oriented, but that only creates one magnetic loop. So now you need another magnetic loop involving two more rod-shaped permanent magnets with the poles at the ends of the rods to create a magnetic loop going in the opposite direction because now when you have this core, you want to subject it to an oscillating magnetic field coming from the primary going to the secondary and back again, from the secondary back to the primary. And that means you need the DC orientation in both Directions simultaneously so that whichever direction is being applied by a coil it'll have one magnetic loop to augment it during each half cycle. It'll always have one loop to augment itself and not entirely fight it. The other one is there fighting it. Um, of course the net... Um, if all four permanent rod-shaped magnets in the core of the two, this trans, ideal transformer are equal equal strengths of magnetic strength, then <clears throat> when the primary, let's say, applies it one-half phase of its alternating cycle, um, it'll be a net gain because the, the two uh, rods that are in opposition to each other, each pair of two rods cancel each other out, so you'll still have the transference of energy from the primary to the secondary but you'll have an added DC boost I don't know if that's called a DC bias or not Um, I don't even understand what a DC bias means Um, oh, but that's usually applied to a frequency generator a voltage source uh, sine wave generator that's right so I'll have to look up what a DC bias means, but that only applies to a signal source. This has to do with a, with a primary, let's say, transferring a signal through the core of a transformer, and what impact it'll have depending on what we make the transformer core out of. Now, obviously, a permanent magnet cannot be um, is not going to be the same makeup as an AC transformer core, which is designed to lose its remnants immediately once the magnetism of the primary, let's say, is reduced to zero. We don't want that. We want a material that's suitable for a a perpetual motion holder. That's it. A perpetual motion holder experiment popularized by Edward Leeds Collin. Yet we want to take a step beyond that because that's just a temporary situation. We want a permanent magnet. And then we use the additional iron that Edward Leedsconland demonstrated in his perpetual motion holder experiment only as an additive magnetic capacitance, which we can get anyway by connecting capacitors to the transformer by shorting it out in pairs. You need two capacitors to short out each transformer <clears throat> with itself against the two terminals of let's say its primary on one side and then another pair um let's see if I have that right. No actually um it's only one capacitor oh let me think <laughs> uh right no oh well no two capacitors one shorting out the primary and one shorting out the secondary so we treat it like a motor in which we have a capacitor uh, across the motor in parallel with the motor coil. Now this is in addition to capacitors that are in series, a pair of capacitors that are in series connecting the terminals of the transformer to something else. Now that something else could be the same model creating a daisy chain of loops of Eric Dollard's analog computer in LMD mode but it's more than LMD mode because now it has capacitors shorting out each coil of the transformers linking the daisy chain of analog computer and LMD modes together and you need those capacitors shorting out the coils of each uh, coil of each transformer in order to initiate over unity initiation is the hardest thing once you get that going everything is clear sailing it'll simply build up but getting it started is the hardest part. And this is basically Buley's archetype, a modified version of Eric Dollard's analog computer in LMD mode that has a ring of capacitors, of four capacitors, and on opposite capacitors, <clears throat> on the pair of capacitors opposed to each other, just one pair, we have positioned the transformers, linking each uh, four capacitor loop together with the next four capacitor loop through magnetic coupling. but um, the capacitors are isolated, electrically isolated from each other, each ring of four capacitors. Um, only magnetic coupling joins them together. And the Beley archetype is superb, but it's so powerful that it explodes. Unlike Eric da- if the transformers are ideal. Now I just stated that the use of the capacitors creates them in an ideal state. So I suspect that if we take out the extra pair of capacitors that are shorting out the coils of the transformer and replace it with a humongous amount of iron with lots of surface area undergoing remnants, that anything short of infinity, infinite uh, mass of iron, will not give us an explosive condition. And I think this is the distinct difference between the two opportunities that we can use to take advantage of to create magnetic capacitance in an analog computer situation of uh, LMD orientation or modality, as an example. <clears throat> this idea of having two capacitors in series on either terminal of a, tr- of a coil, just a single coil to speak of, is a very powerful situation when the capacitance is low and the inductance is high. But that's only with a singular coil and two capacitors, one at each end, in series. Um, if we have a uh, Eric's situation, of an analog computer in LMD mode, it, it changes everything. And if we take it one step further to a Buhle archetype, now we've got to put a braking mechanism on this thing to prevent it from exploding. And I found that to be uh, resistors, uh, diodes, and batteries, particularly uh, batteries that are we are attempting to recharge. They act as uh, good braking mechanisms as well, <clears throat> even if they give only, even if they are relatively dead in the sense that they give out very weak charge, but not enough to power an appliance, but enough to at least be there in residual form. Um, and I've done this study in Paul Falstead's simulator of a Biele archetype applied to the situation of recharging batteries but I'm using batteries as a type of resistor but I have them uh, in addition to diodes to make sure the orientation is to recharge the batteries and prevent them from discharging and I think I might have even put resistors to help regulate the situation as well and switches Flipping uh, analog switches, flipping open and closed to prevent a runaway condition. So I'm not, I can't remember. I'll have to look up what the switching speed was um, because it might have been something ridiculous that's not mechanically possible. But um, there are workaround solutions. So, uh, well, that's what transistors do, but then there's a problem how do you prevent frying transistors if you're dealing with? um, very high surges, um, oh well you well no there's another situation I have to bring up, and that is how do you regenerate nickel metal hydride batteries because all of this is related to each other. I was trying to figure out how to revive the dead batteries in my rav EV rav four EV from 2002 now that um, battery MD up in Sacramento uh, run by Kit Car- uh Kit Rodden. Uh, no longer is in existence in business because there's not enough RAV4 EVs from, from that era, the first generation, to warrant his remaining in business. So now I'm stuck with a car in storage whose batteries cannot hold a charge more than five seconds or an instant. How do I regenerate them on my own? And I think the trick is to use extremely low voltage in the beginning let's say a tenth of environmental background voltage which is somewhere around in the microvolt range so a tenth of a microvolt is um, uh, what is that that's 100 nanovolts Um, or it could be less but something really small so as not to damage anything to start out with and then use a frequency of of, um, pulses they could be square wave pulses for all I care But the frequency speed is significant. It has to be somewhere, to to play it safe, somewhere up in the range of 10,000 cycles per second. And just start out with that. Um, Um, Let's see, what else? Well, yeah, in charging the batteries using an extremely low voltage and restrict the current so that with humongous resistance so that no current can get through and I guess the only way to do that is with capacitors because uh, any high level resistor is very hard to come by and very expensive and could probably get fried at some point anyway as it slowly wears down and then its wear down rate could probably accelerate and then we'd have problems so I think capacitors would be the only way to do this to block the DC flow so that there'd be no current coming and going to the battery and then we add diodes to make it one-way flow if you know any residual current that might be there that might be the best way to do it but to get the switching speed the the, the oscillations so uh, up at around 10,000 and so any residual current will only go in one direction the voltage of course will be massaging in opposite directions and um, it'll be at a high rate and very weak voltage and this is to try to get all of the crystallization I suppose shook up inside the battery to get it loosened up so that its ossification status becomes more flexible because that's what's preventing the batteries from becoming recharged and that might be all that's needed over a certain length of time um and then that to regenerate the batteries and make them capable of holding a charge and now, now when it comes to recharging them they should be recharged correctly which means high voltage low current um they should never have uh high current applied and just a minimum amount of voltage that's uh ages the battery and creates the problems in the first place of them losing the ability to store a charge. Um, and it should probably be pulses. You know, there are a lot of these pulsing uh, available on the internet, uh, on Amazon, that pulse charge a battery, but they don't do the configuration that I've explained at um, a high enough frequency and a low enough voltage and a blockage of current. That I don't think they do. Um, In any case, whatever method is used for regeneration, basically, by way of extension has to be the same method used for recharging them in order to preserve the life of the battery and not destroy it in the course of recharging it. So that terminates this recording.